In the early chapters of the book of Acts, we find divine mathematics at work. Acts chapter 2 verse 47 reads, the Lord added to the church daily those who were being saved. In Acts chapter 6 verse 7 we're told, the word of God spread and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly. In chapter 2, God adds. In Acts chapter 6, he multiplies. But God never divides. Sadly, it's Christians who do that. Yet in Acts chapter 5, God does do some divine subtraction. For here we find the story of a church-going couple named Ananias and his wife Sapphira, which reminds me of the two pastors. They were chit-chatting about their churches When one pastor, he asked the other, he says, have you had any additions to your church? His friend replied, no, but we have had a few blessed subtractions. Well, today we got a killer passage. It's a surefire knockout. It's a drop dead Bible study. Trust me. As new believers, Ananias and Sapphira were just dying to get into the Bible. And this morning, I'm going to show you how they did it. Let's pick it up in chapter 4, verse 32. Now, when the multitude of those who believed were of one heart and one soul, neither did anyone say that any of the things he possessed was his own, but they had all things in common. Now, as we talked about in Acts chapter 2, there was such love, such unity in the early church that everyone pooled their resources. Of course, the extent to which they did it may not have been the best financial strategy moving forward. Later, when famine hits Judea, the Gentile churches are called on to take up an offering for the believers in Jerusalem. Perhaps their abandonment of personal property and wealth had left them unable to weather the storm. But for the moment, the atmosphere in the church was one of sharing. There was such love among each other. The atmosphere was contagious. God was working powerfully. Verse 33 tells us, And with great power, the apostles gave witness to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. And I love this description. Oh, that our church would be described in this way. Here's a summary statement of life in the early church. Great power and great grace. But great power and great grace are sustained by great purity. It's hypocrisy that can undermine God's blessings on a church. And we're about to see that happen in chapter 5. Nor was there anyone among them who lacked, for all who were possessors of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of the things that were sold and laid them at the apostles' feet and they distributed to each as anyone had need. Now, in the first church, large and explosive growth had occurred in a very short period of time. Many of the new converts were Jewish pilgrims who had come up to Jerusalem for the feast. They had no place to stay. They had nothing to eat, and yet they needed to linger for a few weeks to get grounded in their newfound faith. That's when wealthier believers came to the rescue. They liquidated their assets to finance the discipleship. And one such man was named Joseph. And Joseph, who was also named Barnabas, 
by the apostles, which is translated, and what a great name, son of encouragement. Barnabas, or son of encouragement. A Levite of the country of Cyprus, having land, sold it and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. You know, the Old Testament law prohibited the Hebrew tribe of Levi from owning their own land. Their inheritance was to be the temple service. But apparently, God's law had been unable to tame Barnabas' heart. He had insisted on owning land. But what the law failed to do, the love of Jesus had accomplished. For when Jesus filled this brother's heart, the contents of his wallet wasn't nearly as vital as it once was. The love of Jesus can turn the greedy into givers. It turns misers into philanthropists. Here, Barnabas, he gives. He sells the land and he gives it back to the Lord. He bows at the apostles' feet. Later, he'll become one. Which brings us to chapter 5. But a certain man named Ananias with Sapphira, his wife, sold a possession. Now, here is the all-American couple living in Jerusalem. In high school, Ananias was the captain of the football team. Sapphira was the homecoming queen. Now they drive a Mercedes to church every Sunday. They dress in designer jeans. They live on a golf course out in the burbs. They even have a Bible study in their home. This storybook couple was the epitome of respectability. They were the poster child for conservative evangelical success. They even dabbled in real estate on the side. And this is what made them feel so uneasy. You see, their friends at church were getting serious about following Jesus, even to the point of giving and enlightening their wallet. Here, Mr. and Mrs. Country Club feel threatened. I mean, they're thinking, what happened to moderation? You know, these believers are selling off their possessions and they're pooling their resources. Wait a minute, these guys are radical. Ananias and Sapphira liked playing religion, but what they were seeing was real giving, serious commitment. They didn't like the encroachment this made upon their lifestyle. You see, here was their quandary. They weren't about to relinquish control of their own property, but they didn't want to appear stingy or materialistic either. And for this couple, image was everything. They couldn't tolerate looking unspiritual. So here's what they did. Verse 2. They sold a possession and he kept back part of the proceeds, his wife also being aware of it, and brought a certain part and laid it at the apostles' feet. Now, remember, God had never required selling off property and giving it to the church. Having all things in common was strictly voluntary. Neither did God tell Ananias to give all the proceeds. He could have given a portion and just said so. Ananias' sin was to give part and then claim to give all. You see, he lied. He exaggerated his charity to appear spiritual, and he gets busted. Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and keep back part of the price of the land for yourself? His motive had been to impress people, 
rather than to please God. You know, apparently, God could have tolerated their stinginess, even their materialism. He could have worked with them still. But what God wouldn't let gain traction in the church was hypocrisy. See, these folks cared more about looking good than being real. And if tolerated, this attitude would have been a blight on the early church. Peter grills Ananias in verse 4. While it remained, was it not your own? And after it was sold, was it not in your own control? Why have you conceived this thing in your heart? You have not lied to men, but to God. Notice in verse 3, Peter tells Ananias he lied to the Holy Spirit. Now in verse 4, he says Ananias lied to God. Obviously, the Holy Spirit is God. Here's another biblical proof text for the deity of the Holy Spirit. Well, then Ananias, hearing these words, he fell down. (coughs) And he breathed his last. Here's a genuine case of being slain in the Spirit. And I'm not sure any of you would want to share Ananias' fate. God struck down this church member and Ananias took his final dying gasp of air. So great fear came upon all those who heard these things, and I'm sure it did. And the young men arose and wrapped him up, carried him out, and buried him. See, in ancient Israel, corpses were disposed of almost immediately. No need to risk a stench or the spread of disease. They didn't even notify the wife or the next of kin. As I mentioned earlier, great grace and great power were cornerstone characteristics in the early church. But there was one more, great fear. See, church in the book of Acts was serious business. Hypocrites who went to church left either repentant or in a body bag. Play at religion, be a poser. Claim to be more than you really are, and God would take issue with you. And the neighborhood respected this kind of high standard. Hey, realize Satan is sneaky. In Acts chapter 4, he tries to silence the church with threats and intimidation. But the disciples, they drop to their knees. They pray for boldness. But now in Acts chapter 5, Satan tries a different tactic. Intimidation failed, so now he tries infiltration. He tries to dilute their devotion. He contaminates the church with the evil of hypocrisy. If he can't beat us, he'll join us. Peter sees through Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart? Satan is the author of this deception. You know, today, weak-kneed saints will question God's severity. Was it really necessary to deal so harshly? Imagine God using the same standard today. What if Matt led us all in the song, all to Jesus, I surrender. People start dropping like flies all over the sanctuary. Would wages need to send a fleet of hearses just to haul off the bodies? Hey, whenever God launches a new movement, he uses a flurry of miracles to authenticate its genuineness. At the dawning of the church, It was the rushing mighty wind, the flames of fire on the heads of the disciples, the healing of the lame man, 
But then God deals harshly to preserve the work's integrity. You recall God followed the same pattern when Israel entered the promised land. He worked miraculously at Jericho. But at the next battle, Ai, Achan's hidden sin, cost them a devastating defeat. He judged Achan to rid the camp of hypocrisy. This is what God does here. He wants the church both then and now to adhere to the priority he places on purity, spiritual pride and deceit and two-faced spirituality are sins that will quench the Holy Spirit and short-circuit God's work. Well, verse 7, he's got a wife. Now, it was about three hours later when his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. Sapphira probably been shopping at the mall. But she's in on the duplicity. You remember verse 2 called her a co-conspirator. And Peter answered her, tell me whether you sold the land for so much. He gives her a, a chance to come clean. But she said, yes, for so much. Then Peter said to her, how is it that you have agreed together to test the spirit of the Lord? Look, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out. Notice her sin. She tested the spirit of the Lord. In other words, she challenged God's omniscience and his discernment. The fact she lied and thought she could get away with it was an insult to the Holy Spirit. Do you think you can hide the truth from Almighty God? You can't. I read of a restaurant in New York City that has actually built its business on hypocrisy. Husbands bring their wives to this restaurant. Boyfriends bring their girlfriends. Couples get seated and they're handed a menu. But what the girl doesn't know is that the prices in her menu are triple the cost of the prices in the guy's menu. So when he leans in and tells her to order whatever she wants, the girl is deceptively impressed. And yet, this can be a dangerous ruse. For when that lady finds out the truth, boy, it can backfire. As it does here, God knew this couple's motive from the start. Sapphira should have come clean. Instead, verse 10, then immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. And the young men came in and found her dead and carrying her out, buried her by her husband. The golden couple get buried in adjacent plots. They died in shame as a warning to the church. So great fear came upon all the church and upon all who heard these, signs, these things. And through the hands of the apostles, many signs and wonders were done among the people. And they were with all with one accord in Solomon's porch. Yet none of the rest dared join them, but the people esteemed them highly. For a time, all this slowed down the church's growth, I imagine so. But it certainly intensified their respect. Folks realized that God takes faith seriously. You know, the church in all eras needs to be careful about overlooking the importance of our own personal holiness. When we lower the bar in our own lives, we lose the public's respect. All churches need to foster great grace and great fear. 
But it didn't take long for the church to begin to grow again. Verse 14, and believers were increasingly added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women. Apparently, the law of the vineyard applies to churches as well as to grapes. You know, rather than more foliage, the vine dresser is after more fruit. Thus, he prunes the vine. And the same applies to church life. At times, the church has folks hanging on who aren't bearing fruit. They're hypocrites. They're contentious. They're bitter. And there comes a point where God lops off the bad apples. After Mr. and Mrs. Ananias drop out, a new surge of folks come in, and the church begins to grow again. So that they brought the sick out of the street, out into the streets, and laid them on beds and couches, that at least the shadow of Peter passing by might fall on some of them. Also, a multitude gathered from the surrounding cities to Jerusalem, bringing sick people and those who were tormented by unclean spirits, and they were all healed. There was a surge of people, and there was a surge of power. And we learn from the book of Acts that purity and power go hand in hand. As soon as God rids the camp of sin, the movement gains more power and more people. Miracles occur. The the sick are healed. Demoniacs are delivered. And this passage also shows us how far Peter has come. You know, a few months earlier, Peter was sitting in the shadows He was weeping bitterly over his denial of Jesus. He was afraid of arrest. Now he's so associated with the living Lord Jesus that people have connected his shadow with supernatural healing. I don't believe there was anything miraculous about Peter's shadow. But people were healed because it triggered their faith. You know, faith often needs a release point. Faith can be nebulous. It can be a vague kind of thing until it has a focus. This is why we practice the laying on of hands when we pray. When we put our hands on someone, it becomes a rallying point in their mind and heart for their faith. This is what Peter's shadow did. It brought shape and substance to people's faith. And not surprisingly, people were healed by faith. Verse 17, then the high priest rose up and all those who were with him which is the sect of the Sadducees. Most of the Sanhedrin or the leading Jews were of the sect of the Pharisees. Remember the Pharisees, I'm sorry, the Sadducees. Remember the Pharisees were Jesus' enemies, whereas the Sadducees, they opposed the resurrection and thus they were enemies of the church. And they were filled with indignation and they laid their hands on the apostles and put them in the common prison. And this is a different form of laying on of hands. But at night, an angel of the Lord opened the prison doors and brought them out and said, Go stand in the temple and speak to the people all the words of this life. And when they heard that, they entered the temple early in the morning and taught. Now, first, I want you to notice that the angel calls Christianity this life. You know, Christianity is more than a set of doctrines. It's a way to live. It's a lifestyle. It impacts how we live our lives daily. And notice too, the angel says to preach in the temple. And the very next morning, the apostles report for duty. Now here's a quiz for you geography buffs. 
What's the world's largest nation? The answer? Procrastination. (laughs) More people live there than any other state, trust me. Hey, when God gives orders, don't hesitate. Don't procrastinate. Just activate. Notice the disciples are told to preach in the temple, and they're there early in the morning. They came in before they were supposed to. They came early. They were ready. But the high priest and those with him came and called the council together with all the elders of the children of Israel and sent to the prison to have them brought. Obviously, they were unaware of the angel's early release program. But when the officers came and did not find them in the prison, they returned and reported, saying, Indeed, we found the prison shut securely and the guards standing outside before the doors. But when we opened them, we found no one inside. Now, when the high priest heard these things, they wondered what the outcome would be. So one came and told them, saying, Look, the men whom you put in prison are standing in the temple and teaching the people. Surprise, surprise. Then the captain went with the officers and brought them without violence for they feared the people, lest they should be stoned. And when they had brought them, they set them before the council. The council, of course, was the Jewish Sanhedrin. It was the highest authority in Judaism. It was the equivalent of their Supreme Court. And the high priest asked them, saying, Did we not strictly command you not to teach in this name, the name of Jesus? And look, you have filled Jerusalem with your doctrine. And what a compliment this was to Peter and the apostles. They had filled their city with the gospel. This should be the goal of our church, to flood our city with the good news of Jesus Christ. And notice they also accused Peter of intending to bring this man's blood on us. What a short memory the high priest had. You remember when he asked Pilate to release Barabbas? You remember what he said of Jesus? His blood be on us and on our children. Now Peter isn't going to let him forget what he'd asked for on that ominous day. But Peter and the other apostles answered and said, Hey, we ought to obey God rather than men. Now later in his letter, 1 Peter The apostle will write, submit yourselves to every ordinance of man, for this is the will of God. Understand, Peter was no anarchist. He believed that submission to human authority was a Christian virtue. Hey, if we can't submit to the government an authority that we can see, then how will we submit to God an authority that's invisible? Peter believed in paying taxes. He believed in driving the speed limit. He obeyed civil authority as long as its demands didn't conflict with the will of God. But when that happened, he had a choice. Obey man or obey God. And for Peter, that was no choice, no choice at all. It's always better to obey God. Well, he preaches to the Sanhedrin in verse 30. The God of our fathers raised up Jesus, whom you murdered by hanging on a tree. Again, Peter, full of boldness. Him God has exalted to his right hand to be prince and savior, 
to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are his witnesses to these things. And so also is the Holy Spirit whom God has given to those who obey him. Boy, the more dire the threats, the braver Peter grows. He violates their orders before he even leaves the room. Every time he preaches, his life is threatened, and yet he remains fearless. We're told when they heard this, they were furious, plotted to kill them. And then one in the council stood up, a Pharisee named Gamaliel, a voice of reason, a teacher of the law held in respect by all the people and commanded them to put the apostles outside for a little while. He wants to speak to the Jews privately. Now, Jewish sources tell us that Rabbi Gamaliel was the preeminent scholar of his day. His contemporaries called him, and I quote, the beauty of the law. At his funeral, it was said that the glory of the law ceased and purity and abstinence died. Gamaliel was respected by all of the Jews, both his fellow Pharisees and the rival Sadducees. As a side note, according to Acts chapter 22, verse 3, one of his most brilliant students was a young Jew from Tarsus, a man named Saul, who later would be renamed Paul. Well, this Gamaliel, he said to them, Men of Israel, take heed to yourselves what you intend to do regarding these men. For some time ago, Thutis rose up claiming to be somebody. A number of men, about 400, joined him. He was slain, and all who obeyed him were scattered and came to nothing. After this man, Judas of Galilee rose up in the days of the census and drew away many people after him. He also perished, and all who obeyed him were dispersed. Now, we know very little about this Thutis or Judas. But see, that was Gamaliel's point. They had created a stir. Yet it was short-lived. It died out. And now I say to you, keep away from these men and let them alone. For if this plan or this work is of men, it will come to nothing. But if it is of God, you cannot overthrow it, lest you even be found to fight against God. In other words, if this Jesus movement is of man, it'll drift into oblivion. But if it's of God, You won't be able to defeat it, nor would you want to. The Rabbi Gamaliel gave the Sanhedrin some wise and sage advice. And I wonder what Gamaliel would say to us today, 2,000 years later, now that Christianity has transformed cultures and birthed nations and civilizations, affected numerous generations, and spread to the four corners of the globe, I'm sure he'd say, This Jesus movement was of God after all. Verse 40, and they agreed with him. And when they had called for the apostles and beaten them, they commanded that they should not speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. Rather than execute the apostles, they roughed them up a bit, flogged them, and then sent them on. It was one more attempt on their part to intimidate them into silence. And you got to love their reaction. (laughs) No apostolic pity parties here. So they departed from the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer shame for his name. They treated persecution for Jesus like a medal. It was a badge of honor for them. 
And daily in the temple and in every house, they did not cease teaching and preaching Jesus as the Christ, as the Messiah. I love how Winston Churchill defined a fanatic. He said, a fanatic is someone who can't change his mind and won't change the subject. This was the apostles. How do you stop guys who interpret a beating as a blessing? You throw them in prison and they praise God. You shame them and they take it as an honor. Try to silence them and they grow more public and more vocal. The disciples recalled the words of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount. Blessed are you when they revile and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad for great is your reward in heaven. How do you defeat people who live for heaven's reward? You don't. Chapter 6. Now in those days, when the number of the disciples was multiplying, there arose a complaint against the Hebrews by the Hellenists because their widows were neglected in the daily distribution. Now remember the divine math. God adds... He multiplies, he even subtracts, but he never divides. It's the members of a church that cause division. And I've heard churches splitting over the silliest of stuff, the color of the carpet. Two factions develop. Or the location of the water cooler. Are you kidding me? Trivial stuff. Obviously, there are issues worth fighting for, but how often do churches divide over picky, petty matters? It's the superficial stuff that so often knocks us off the rails. Which brings us to Acts chapter 6, the first church squabble. The church of Jerusalem has a breach over bread. See, the dispute erupted over whether the Greek widows were getting a fair share of the benevolence of the groceries. This conflict was over a minor matter, but as these situations often do, it had escalated to major proportions. Now, this word Hellenist refers to the Jews who had embraced Greek language and Greek culture. The Hebrew purists resented these people. In their eyes, they were compromisers. And there was great tension between the two groups, the Hellenists and the Hebrews. So when there seemed to be inequities in the distribution of the church's benevolence, the Hellenists were quick to call foul and accuse the Hebrews of discrimination. It was an ugly, volatile situation with the potential of permanently thwarting the rapid expansion and the righteous harmony of the infant church. Disaster was averted because of some wise leadership. Verse 2. Then the twelve summoned the multitude of the disciples and said, It is not desirable that we should leave the word of God and serve tables. Now the problem wasn't being caused by bigotry as they had been accused. The problem was much simpler. It was just busyness. See, the apostles were just stretched thin. They were trying to do it all. They were hammering out sound doctrine fighting with the Sanhedrin, discipling new believers, and now they're called on to wait on tables? It was all just too much. And you know, pastors today can face the same dilemma. Everybody wants the pastor to be there. 
at the meeting or the wedding or the party or the special event or if a member heads to the hospital or if a teenager gets into trouble or if you and your spouse have a squabble. People want their email answered and their phone call taken and their invitation accepted. Pastor, can you spare me a few minutes of your time? And oh yeah, we need you to prepare good quality Bible studies every single week. Now, I'm not complaining. I'm just saying it gets to be a lot. And this is why I won't even mention the burnout rate for pastors. It's astronomical. If a pastor's going to survive, he has to learn to say no, to prioritize and delegate. And this is what the apostles do here in Acts chapter 6. They realize that they're the paper jam. They're the bottleneck in the life of this church. If they don't get others involved, they're going to hinder the work that they hope to advance. Their priority is clear. It is not desirable that we leave the word of God. Realize the ministry of God's word should be every pastor's top priority. You know, the Bible calls itself a fire, a food, a sword, a hammer. It's God's revelation to man. Without the Bible, the church is hopeless and defenseless. Longtime coach of the Michigan State Spartans, Duffy Doherty, he once told his team, men, when you're playing for the national championship, it's not a matter of life and death. It's more important than that. That's a sky-high priority. And yet that's how every pastor should feel about teaching the scriptures. From week to week, other needs seem to be more urgent than just preparing another Bible study. But in God's wisdom, nothing is more vital for the church's health. The apostles knew this, and to solve the problem, they decided to delegate. Verse 3. Therefore, brethren, seek out from among you seven men of good reputation, full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom, whom we may appoint over this business. But we will give ourselves continually to prayer and to the ministry of the word. This matter was about the daily distribution. Greek for distribution is the word diaconus, or literally deacon. This is why the seven men who were chosen to take over this were considered the church's first deacons. Now, it's interesting to note the simple leadership structure that existed in the early church. The apostles or the elders led and fed the flock while the deacons served in practical ways. Elders were overseers. The deacons were the designated doers. And notice the high spiritual qualifications given to the men who were just passing out lunch to the widows. They were to be of good reputation, full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom. You know what this says to me? It means that there are no menial tasks in the church. Every task is vital if we are serving those who have been bought by the blood of Jesus. All folks should be treated with both love and care. I think churches today have developed the wrong focus when it comes to church government. They become rigid in regards to structure, but they compromise the character of the men who occupy that structure. I think we get it backwards. The New Testament is flexible regarding structure, but it is unwavering when it comes to the leader's character. 
Verse 5 tells us that this decision averted a major schism. And the saying pleased the whole multitude. There was a unity that now came over the church. And they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip. And the next two chapters that we'll study in the coming weeks, we'll talk about Stephen and Philip and their ministries. They also chose Procurus. He was a long-time assistant to the Apostle John. He died a martyr's death. They also chose Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte from Antioch. Some teachers identify Nicholas with the heresy spoken of in Revelation 2 and 3, the sin of the Nicolaitans. Nico means ruler and Laos means people. Thus, the Nicolaitans practiced a bullying type of leadership. They loved to rule over the people. Could it be Nicholas rebelled against his earlier role? He tired of serving as a deacon? He craved for power and control? Possible. One other point, later in Acts, elders are appointed by fellow elders. But here the deacons are selected by the church. Peter said, seek out from among you. In light of that, it's interesting that all seven deacons chosen have Greek or Hellenistic names. Remember the initial problem. The Hellenistic widows felt slighted. Thus, the Jerusalem church chose servants that the perceived victims would be inclined to trust. Hey, what was vital in this church was unity, not privilege. Verse 6, the deacons were set before the apostles. And when they had prayed, they laid hands on them. And what happened? The word of God spread. And the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem. See, the apostles' decision to prioritize God's word and delegate the simpler tasks unclogged the bottleneck. Their decision not to do it all but pass on ministry to other believers spawned a new season of growth. And a great many of the priests were obedient to the faith. In the first century, there were 8,000 priests that served in the temple in Jerusalem. Remember, the Jewish priesthood was limited to one family, the descendants of Aaron. But in Christ, every believer gets in on the priestly action. Each of us has a direct connection to God. We all enter his presence. Someone came up for prayer this morning and they said, I heard you got a hotline to God. Not any more than you do. We've all become priests. We all through Jesus Christ, have access to his throne. The Jewish priests also had witnessed the temple veil being torn in two when Jesus died. It was a sign. In Christ, the separation between God and man was over. Every believer now has the access of a priest. All this must have resonated with the priests in Jerusalem, and thus many converted to Christianity. Well, notice verse 8. And Stephen, full of faith and power, did great wonders and signs among the people. Didn't take long for Stephen to go from table waiter to miracle worker. Apparently, God rewarded Stephen's faithful service with a broader and a bolder ministry. He was faithful in a little, and God rewarded him with much. Then there arose some from what is called the synagogue of the freedmen, Cyrenians, Alexandrians, and those from Cilicia and Asia, disputing with Stephen. 
The freedmen were Jews whose fathers had been Roman slaves. Implied is that they had won their freedom and had formed their own synagogue. For some reason, they have a beef with Stephen. We don't know why, but they argued with him. And they were not able to resist the wisdom and the spirit by which he spoke. Then they secretly induced men to say, we have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. And you've seen this strategy before. You can't refute. They couldn't refute Stephen, so they make up fake news. And they hired false accusers. And they stirred up the people, the elders and the scribes, and they came upon him, seized him, and brought him to the council, again to the Sanhedrin. They also set up false witnesses who said, this man does not cease to speak blasphemous words against this holy place in the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and change the customs which Moses delivered to us. And all who sat in the council looked steadfastly at him, saw his face as the face of an angel. Despite the lies they'd heard, this guy had a glow about him. He had the face of an angel. There was a godly glow radiating from Steve. Charles Spurgeon once said to his pastoral students, men, when you teach on heaven, let there always be a glow on your face, a gleam in your eye, and a grin on your lips. When you teach on hell, your normal face will do. Apparently, Stephen had a certain glow about him. Reminds me of Exodus chapter 34, when Moses spent time in the presence of God. You remember a visible sheen, a sparkle, some kind of luster lingered and radiated from his countenance. Call it the divine shine. I like to call it the mo glow. Evidently, God's glory had a similar effect on the face of Stephen. And it's interesting, the similarity between Moses and Stephen should have tipped off the Jews that rather than contradict Moses, Stephen and Moses were acting in harmony with each other. Obviously, that connection uh, sailed over their heads. We'll study Stephen's testimony in Acts chapter 7. You need to read it in advance, and we'll talk about it next time. Father, we thank you.